You're listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, here in uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 35 and following, we're, of course, continuing the section here in Luke's gospel where Jesus is preparing himself for the cross, but also preparing his disciples not only for the cross, but life after the ascension, the uh, launch of the church, the era that we would read of in the book of Acts. And these men and those who would follow them, people like us, uh, needed to be readied uh, for the work in front of them, given a mind to work, a mind for faithfulness, and and an understanding of what the mission uh, is all about. And so in this section that we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to prepare his disciples that they might be ready, that they might be faithful. He's going to teach them about his mission, and then he's going to exhort the crowds to get right with God. Jesus said it this way first in verse 35, speaking to his disciples about readiness. He said, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. We see here immediately that the characteristic of the disciples in general is one of anticipation. They would be anticipating the return of the master. He talks about a wedding feast that a master of a household had gone to visit. And when he returns from that wedding feast, which could have lasted up to seven days or longer, so the servants wouldn't know necessarily the exact moment that the master would come home, when he does come home, they are waiting for him that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. It's a picture. It's a picture of the anticipation of the servants trying to illustrate the anticipation that the disciples would have uh, for the Lord. And so we're learning, of course, right away, that we're to be people who anticipate the return of the Lord. Notice the way Jesus said it. He said, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Literally, gird up your robes wear your clothing in a way that you're able to move. And of course, that's not in the physical realm, but spiritually speaking, stay ready for action. Keep yourself sharp. Keep yourself strong. Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. In other words, the place that God's love pours out, the place where his grace is experienced, continue to be in those places. You know that you're going to experience the love of God when you read the word, so read the word. You know that you're going to experience the power of God in the local assembly, so be in the local assembly. You know that you're going to experience uh, necessary faith and trust in God when you open your mouth to share the gospel. So share the gospel, stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning. And uh, so just a a strong exhortation uh, from Jesus. Be ready, be ready, anticipate the return of the master. He says in verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. 
Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. First, let's take the concept of the master returning from a long journey at the second watch or in the third. Uh, in, from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. would cover the second and the third watch of the night. Those are difficult times for a servant, would be a difficult time for a servant to stay awake. It's essentially the graveyard shift. And Jesus says, you know, blessed is the servant who is awake during that moment, during that time. I think that that does highlight a truth that there are some times that are easier to remain ready and awake and alert for the Lord than others. There are some communities that it's easier to stand for Christ in than others. There are some countries that it is easier to hold fast to your integrity than in others. But the believers who are able to do it, even in the most adverse situations and environments, are, as Jesus said, blessed when he returns. Notice, though, in verse 37, he says this fascinating thing that when the master comes and finds his servants awake, he will actually reverse the roles. He will take the conventional roles and flip them around. He will dress himself for service and he will have them recline at the table and he will come and he will serve them. Listen, for all of eternity, Jesus will, in one sense, be serving us as his people. Rewards and crowns and position and kingdom. He will be serving his servants for all of eternity. But in verse 39, Jesus said, But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, this is, in one sense, a related illustration. And the obvious concept here is that thieves, when they come to rob, they do not announce the time that they will arrive. You don't get a little email from your friendly neighborhood thief letting you know the time that he will be there to, you know, rob your house. It's not the way uh, that it works. You don't know what hour the thief is coming. Jesus said if the master had known that, he would not have left his, his house to be broken into. So instead, verse 40, you be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, the beautiful thing here is that Jesus, although not like a thief in most ways, is like a thief in that his arrival for his people will not be announced. He could come at any moment. There's a a level of imminency in the return of Jesus. He compares his coming to that of a thief, not only here, but in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, and again in Revelation 3, 3, and 16, verse 15. So he says, that's the way I'm coming. You also, verse 40, must be ready. So this begs the question, 
How could a disciple, how could we be ready for the Lord's return? Well, two ways not to be ready would be, number one, a an escapism mentality. You know, just some kind of belief that oh, the Lord could return at any moment, so it's not important for me to you know, finish my education. It's not important for me to uh, pay off my debts. It's not important for me to plan for the future. That's one way in which we are not to approach the imminency in our hearts of the Lord's return. That's not readiness at all. That's not being a good steward of anything uh, that the Lord has uh, for your life. And for the life of me, I cannot understand that kind of uh, mentality. It has never been my natural reaction to the possibility of meeting Jesus at any moment in my life. Imminency has never created that kind of escapist mentality within my mind, and it really ought not be the case in anyone's heart. Another way that we're not to be ready is by trying to calculate some date of the return of Jesus. He doesn't say, you also should calculate. No, he says, you also must be ready. So, how, however, can we be ready for the Lord's return? Well, I think two passages illustrate this quite beautifully for us. One of the passages is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There's an era coming where people will say peace and security instead of realizing God is the righteous judge. I think one way that we can prepare ourselves is to, instead of saying that God is fine with all sin, we need to reject sin, especially in our own lives. He goes on to say in that same passage that we are children of the light and not darkness. And so a way to be ready is to continue to walk in the light, to receive Jesus, to come into the light and to walk with him. He then goes on to say in that same passage that we are uh, to be awake and sober towards the Lord by having faith, love, and the hope of salvation working in our lives. So another way to be ready is to continue to put on the best attributes of the Christian life. Continue to grow. Continue to allow the ministry of the Spirit to change you and to transform you. Continue to become more like Jesus in the here and now. And then he tells us in that same passage that we are to encourage one another and build one another up. And so a way to be ready is to encourage this kind of life in others. The second passage that I would look at is in Revelation 3, verse 1 through 6, the letter of Jesus to the church in Sardis. They had a mere reputation for being alive, but instead were actually dying, if not dead. Jesus told them to wake up and to strengthen that which remains. So if we are to really ready ourselves, we have to, I think, be dissatisfied with a lifeless Christianity. We have to long for something that is real and legitimate, doesn't just have a reputation for life, but is truly alive. He tells them to strengthen what is there and complete the works that God gave to them. So I think that means that part of being ready is to stir up what God has put inside of us. He tells them to repent, 
meaning that part of being ready is to deal with sin. And he tells them not to soil their garments. In other words, we shouldn't let things into our lives that do not mix with the return of Christ. If he were to come back for you right now, if he were to call you to be uh, with him eternally right now at this moment, which no matter your eschatological belief system and structure, the reality is, is that life is tenuous. And so at any moment you could meet your maker. And the question would be, do you have things in your life that you would like to have out of your life before that moment comes? Well, be ready, prepare yourself at this moment. So Jesus here urges his disciples towards a life of readiness and preparation and action. Now, Peter, back in Luke's gospel, said and really served as sort of the spokesman for the group, Lord, are you telling this parable for us all? He wanted to know who this parable was aimed at. Jesus really doesn't respond straightforwardly. Kind of the answer that he gives is, well, it's obviously for you, but it's for anybody who would want to be a faithful and wise messenger. So uh, it's kind of open. If the shoe fits, uh, wear it. If you want to be a disciple, wear it. So he says in verse 42, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now, this is a similar parable to the first, but it does have some differences. Here, the master has committed his household to a faithful and wise manager. And this is the way that ancient Uh, wealthy households would be organized. You have the owner of the house, the head of the house, who would then hire a manager to take care of all of the servants and make sure that they get their meals and their salary and that everything is running and operating smoothly. And so the master would deal with the manager and the manager would deal with the master, but also would deal with the staff, so to speak. And so Jesus says, Who's good at that? Who's faithful? Who's wise? Uh, Well, here's the one. The one who gives the portion of food at the proper time. The one who delivers the meat. The one who delivers the food. The one who is faithful in his task as the leader of the household. In one sense, the question is, what does the good steward do in Jesus' parable? And the answer is, he consistently feeds the household. I think Peter had this in his own mind when he thought about the pastoral ministry. And there is certainly a pastoral ministry-based tone in this particular uh, text. And I think Peter thought of that when he encouraged elders to, in 1 Peter 5, verse 1 through 4, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive what? The crown, the unfading crown of glory. 
a beautiful promise for elders in the church to receive that unfading crown of glory from Jesus eternally. And I think that Peter probably had this little parable in his mind. Jesus said, the good householder will feed consistently the servants of the head of the house or the master. He will feed them. He will care for them. He will consistently deliver to them the truth of God's word. So we know what the good servant will receive from the Lord. But Jesus goes on in his parable to say, But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now, this uh, punishment for this unfaithfulness is rather extreme, and so... It seems as if Jesus' application has burst into uh, the story and has invaded uh, the parable. And it appears that what you're dealing with is a man who is saying, my master is delaying his coming. In other words, in his own mind, he's saying, I don't know when he's coming, but he's not coming right now. And he put off his obedience to the master because the master was vacant, because the master was gone. Now, what are we called to to do here? We are called to be a people who do not say, well, the Lord is gone. He's on a long journey. He's delayed. He is not coming back anytime soon. I can get right with him later. No, we're to be a people who trust and believe in the imminency of the return of Jesus Christ, who are ready to say, look, I don't know when he's coming. It could be right now, but I want to do everything I can to be faithful in my life. And sometimes talk like this is difficult for people in the modern church era to receive. Unfortunately, many believe that any talk like this Any talk of working or any talk of doing, any talk of a master and leader and uh, servant-slave relationship, any talk of that inside the body of Christ is sometimes seen as legalism amongst certain groups of people. But the reality is that this is what it means to live out the Christian life. This is not what a man should do in order to be saved, but this is what a saved man does. He serves Jesus. He gives his life to Jesus. He does not say, my master is delayed. I'll do whatever I want. No, he's obedient to the Lord. He does not want to suffer the consequences of disobedience. Now Jesus says, after talking about, after talking about the obedient servant and the disobedient servant, He says in verse 47, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now, this is fascinating from the lips of Jesus. He says, basically, you know, if there's a servant who knows what the master wants 
and refuses to do it. It's been revealed to him. He's had revelation. He knows the master's will, but he did not do it. He did not get ready. He did not act according to the will of the master. Well, his beating, his punishment will be severe. But if you have another servant who really didn't know, he didn't know what it was that the master wanted, uh, but he still did the wrong thing, he will also receive punishment. In other words, ignorance is not an acceptable excuse for disobedience. There's an ability, I think, as a servant to think through what would my master long for? What would my master desire? It's not all that mysterious. However, he does get a lesser beating, a less severe uh, punishment or uh, level of discipline. That's why Jesus says, listen, if much is given to you, much will be required. To those whom are is entrusted much, they will demand the more. I think about this often in my own life because I feel as if much has been uh, given to me and much has been entrusted to me. And a big part of that for me is just the upbringing that I had living in a Christian home, living in uh, the United States with access to all kinds of wonderful learning and theology and doctrine living in a pastor's home where I learned what it meant to be a Bible teacher and communicate the word of God on a week-in, week-out basis, having that kind of heritage in my life, I just believe that the Lord has given me a lot and that he is expecting much of him who much is given, much will be required, Jesus said. So it's not right for us to look around and compare ourselves with others. We have to look at what the Lord has called us to do, and we need to be obedient to what the Lord has given to us. You want to do everything that the master has asked of your life. Now in verse 49, Jesus says something that is very fascinating. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, his phrases and words will actually become even more fascinating than this, but think about what Jesus said. Firstly, verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. So the question that we would ask is, what kind of fire did Jesus want to cast uh, upon the earth. Now, there is, in one sense, a fire of judgment. Uh, but I personally take this as a little bit more of something that consumes. A fire is a consuming thing. And what he wants is a fire that would spread, that would be kindled, that would be cast upon uh, the earth. So I believe personally that Jesus is probably talking about the church age. I'm here to cast a fire onto the earth. In other words, the church is something that needs to burn, that needs to progress, that needs to advance, that needs to move forward. This is not a stagnant thing that we are a part of, but something that is moving and growing and consuming and reaching into uh, people's lives. Jesus wants it to already have been kindled. He says, that's the real reason that I'm here. I'm here to get this fire started. In verse 50, though, he tells us how the fire is started. 
He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, when we read the word baptism, we often in our mind's eye have the idea of water. And some baptisms in the Bible are water baptisms, but many of them are different kinds of baptisms. We are baptized uh, into Christ the moment that we believe, the moment that we are born again. We are identified with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's a concept that is not filled with water. It's just filled with truth. So there are dry baptisms throughout the New Testament. It simply means to be immersed in something. And Jesus says that he has a baptism to be baptized with. Now, he already at this point has been water baptized by his cousin John. So he's not speaking about that. What is Jesus referring to? Well, most people believe that Jesus is simply talking about his cross, that it was a distressful event, but something that he looked forward to. How great is my distress, he said, until it is accomplished. I need to be immersed in that moment, really in one sense, immersed in the punishment that was rightfully ours being cast into his own body there upon the cross. So Jesus longing for his cross, that moment of powerful ministry. Another incredible thing that Jesus said is found in verse 51. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, the interesting thing, of course, to us is that as believers, one of the things that we believe that we receive from Jesus uh, is peace with God. So it's shocking to us to hear him say, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? To what is Jesus referring? Well, it's very obvious after this, he talks about a lack of of peace between people. Even in a household of five, there will be three against two and two against three. Father against son and vice versa. Mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother in law against her daughter in law, and vice versa. So uh, it, we know that Jesus here is not making a comment about the peace that he offers with God. He does offer peace with God. And that is a version of peace that we humans can experience here on earth as Jesus offers the way for us to have peace with God, which we'll read about in a moment. But here what he's announcing to his disciples as a word of preparation is, guys, get ready. My message, my fire, my cross, when, it, when, when the cross is initiated and I am resurrected and then I ascend and pour out the Spirit, a fire will begin. And that fire is going to go out and even households are going to be divided uh, because of the truth of this gospel message. And I'm sure that many of you who are listening to this, you've experienced this in your own life. You've 
you've experienced a level, perhaps, of division, sometimes even within your own family, as a result of your belief in Jesus. And it's good for your mind to know that that will come and that that is normal because we see that division sometimes and we think, surely this is not of Christ. But Jesus said, I did not come to give peace on earth, but rather division. Now in verse 54, Jesus said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming and so it happens. They had that discernment. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. Jesus said, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? In other words, they could look at the sky or look at the wind, and they made these judgments concerning what would come in the weather. They should have been able to look at what Jesus was doing and discern and interpret the times and believe that Jesus had an altogether different kingdom, believe that Jesus is the Christ. But so many of them, even after hearing the full message of the gospel after his resurrection, would reject that gospel message. Jesus said, verse 57, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And it seems that what Jesus is saying here with this story or this picture is that a day is coming where every human being is going to be brought before the righteous judge, God himself. And so here on earth is the time for us to try to settle with our accuser. And the way that you settle with the accuser so that you do not have to try to pay the debt that you owe him, which would never be able to be paid, in order to settle that account, you must believe upon Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sin, that he shed his blood for you, that he substituted himself for uh, your life. And so the readiness, the preparation for the disciple, I hope that in your life and in your heart, you are able to become more and more prepared for all that Jesus has called you to. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.